if I really knew what Chopin intended on the prelude, how would I play it? You know, you study a piece, and then when you play it, you have to sort of forget the practice and just play the music. And I think that is somehow, you know, relevant to how I, how I think about designing, is you do all the preparation, you do all the research, and then you have to create an idea, birth an idea that isn't necessarily dictated by all those various pieces before it. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. One of the beautiful things about covering architecture and design is how every studio brings their own unique talents and passions to a project. While many so-called celebrity designers might feign that they only do whatever their clients ask or try to explain about how their work is simply a matter of logic, diversity in style, approach, and outcome persists in the most beautiful way. My guest today is someone who I can assuredly attest has made the built environment more comfortable, more enlightening, more technically advanced, and more entertaining than most. And it's probably the most unique mixture of qualities I've ever encountered. Through his hotels, train stations, airports, theaters, public works, products, restaurants, and more, he's raised expectations on the power of design in so many ways. David Rockwell. Born in the U.S. and currently based in New York, David's teenage years took an unexpected turn when his family moved to Mexico and his experiences during that time pushed him to become the creative powerhouse that he is today. And in 2024, David and his firm, The Rockwell Group, is hundreds of employees strong and is preparing to celebrate its 40th anniversary this winter. Nearly every major project of The Rockwell Group seems to have made an impact on its field. His early designs for the sushi restaurant Nobu became legend. His designs for some of the first W hotels set a new standard for hospitality and the meaning of a hotel brand. And projects like the mixed-use exhibition space and entertainment venue The Shed in New York expanded what was impossible with good design. And in his beloved New York, he was called upon during the pandemic by the city for a concept called Dine Out, where clever planning by the firm helped the town adapt restaurants to the outdoor world in one of the busiest and most demanding places in the world. Of course, no discussion about David Rockwell will be complete without a mention of his work in the American theater. He maintains a studio that works consistently on Broadway productions. He's won a Tony Award and received six nominations. For works on hits like Kinky Boots, A Midsummer's Night's Dream, Hairspray, and many more. And he's even designed stage for the Academy Awards. While all of these high-profile and rather exuberant projects might lead you to believe that David himself is quite the attention-grabbing type, he's anything but. Full disclosure, I've known the Rockwell team for years and even did some projects with them before my days at Departures. And as long as I've known him, David has consistently brought a sense of thoughtfulness and innovation to his field and his work for various charities is legendary. I caught up with David from his headquarters in New York while he nursed a cold to share his experiences as a teenager in Guadalajara, what Robert De Niro wanted from him when he built the first Nobu, his take on the American theater, and more. So let's, I would love, you know, I've known you for a long time and, you know, we have collaborated on, on stuff in the past and, you know, but I wanted to go back to the very beginning. And, you know, I've read that you grew up in a theater family uh, that casted you in like repertory theater and so on. But I was wondering if uh, did a, a young David Rockwell enjoy that at all? Or is that something that your your family kind of forced you into like like mine did with soccer lessons? 
No, it was kind of the opposite of that. I was born in Chicago and moved when I was quite young, I think four, to the Jersey Shore. And my mom had been a dancer in vaudeville. I'm the youngest of five boys. So by the time I came around, of course, she wasn't doing that. But in this beautiful private suburb on the Jersey Shore, she helped to start a community theater. And as a young kid, I was instantly kind of mesmerized by how it transformed our little town. Um, for those of you who know the movie Waiting for Guffman, it really isn't that different. Uh, I was It was like a magnetic attraction uh, to every part about it. I played piano as a kid, not well, but a lot. And every part of our community came together to make these shows. So I was uh, cast in some of the younger kid roles. There were productions where adults played adults. But it was my first chance to... I think, get a sense of what became kind of one of the defining things of my career, which is how people working together, kind of community attraction is what energizes places. And um, and it linked totally congruently to the other things I was interested, in, which was taking every piece of our backyard and boxes and making these low-tech Rube Goldberg contraptions. What kind of contraptions? Uh, we had a garage with a second floor. I made seasonal installations, and I still try and get clients to do seasonal installations. So that hasn't changed. Um, my favorite thing to build was a spook house every year that used doors and rollers and buckets with ping pong balls and lots of strings and, um, you know, very Rube Goldberg-like. <laughs> and what did your dad do? Your mom was in the theater. What, did you, what, did your, what was your dad doing? Um, both my parents actually passed away at a pretty young age, and, and I think the, the, the kind of fleeting quality of their life and the amount of moving around that I did as a young kid really set me up to um, appreciate and yearn for moments of celebration and um, maybe an insight into temporal, which also became a big part of my work life. Um, my dad was... Um, my, my dad dad died when I was three. My mom remarried when I was four, moved to the Jersey Shore with the man who raised me, John Rockwell, who was a businessman who also uh, developed inventions and um, developed a fastener called the Wellnut. And at age 12, he, me, not him, he sold his business and had been um, researching highest quality of life and packed up the station wagon and my mom and my dad and one brother, the other three in college, packed up and moved to Guadalajara, Mexico. But what was the Wellnut? The Wellnut was a competitor to the Molly Bolt, the more well-known Molly Bolt, which you may be familiar with. <laughs> I'm not. Oh. I'll now you'll have to explain. <laughs> it's a fastener that goes into sheetrock and expands when it's open. Ah, okay. Well, fitting. Wow. Okay. Amazing. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? And so, you know, you kind of go from the Jersey Shore to Guadal Guadalajara, like on a almost feeling like it's on a whim. I mean, that must, was that kind of a culture shock for you as a, as a young kid? How old were you at the time? 12. It was really a total positive, amazing uh, transition for me. <clears throat> it wasn't quite the same for everyone in my family, but I loved it. What was, what was strange is how different Guadalajara was than Deal, New Jersey. Deal, New Jersey was this privileged suburb with big, big homes. In Guadalajara, was as if you took Deal and turned it inside out, because uh, 
all of kind of life happened on the street there. These beautiful rose-lined streets, soccer in the streets. Um, uh, so it was it was a great, great experience for me and I think influenced my uh, work life and influenced how I think about color and materials and quality of light. It's where I became fascinated with light and design. And what did your 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 family do in Guadalajara? Like, did that did any of them speak Spanish? Were they was there any friends there, <laughs> or is it just like a total cold plunge? Cold plunge. But I went to a school called the American School of Guadalajara, which is about forty percent English and about sixty percent Spanish. And I was totally fluent within about six months at that age, and I thought in Spanish as well. My uh, dad had retired, but he did other little business ventures, um, different things he tried to do there. But what was interesting is he never really learned Spanish fluently. So I became the translator when he was trying to have these meetings, which uh, was was an interesting experience. I I think one of the things about Guadalajara that's most powerful was my attraction to the marketplace and the kind of museum, the bullring, the marketplace all coalesced in this kind of amazing public space. And it was a great gift. It was a great gift to um, to be in a new environment. And I suppose my interest in reinvention and my interest in applying my skill set or my interest to a different building type certainly was influenced by that transition. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 400 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. David Rockwell is known for his work both on the Broadway stage and also in luxury hotels around the world. In other words, he knows a thing or two about theatricality and making a statement. On Lumens.com, you can find dramatic pieces by shopping a particular style and choosing, what else, glam. You'll find silvery pieces by Jonathan Adler, sheepskin Scandinavian chairs from Otto Copenhagen, or marble end tables by the brand Four Hands. Or maybe you just need a reflective golden bowl from Alessi to catch the light and add some sparkle. To set the stage for your own dramatic statement, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. And so after your life there, how did that lead to you going to Syracuse and, and sort of studying architecture there? Uh, I would say nonlinearly. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was interested in buildings and I was very interested in piano. Um, and I was curious about the kind of world around me. And I knew that whatever I did, I wanted to come back east. I had three brothers in the New York area. I knew I wanted to be around the theater in New York. Um, so I mostly focused on East Coast schools and um, my portfolio submission for Syracuse University was playing a list rhapsody and some drawings. Um, but it was not a predestined Frank Lloyd Wright. I got blocks as a young kid and that's all I was going to do. It was a hunch um, that it was an interesting thing. Um, it was certainly based on uh, 
starting to look at forms in, in Guadalajara and visiting Syracuse, liking the campus, and um, then being enrolled in the architecture program, which ended up being a great experience, but it was a little bumpy at first. And how, I'm, I'm curious, like what the what year was this when we're talking about going to Syracuse? 74. So the architecture education back then, was it, you know, tell take me back. Strict modernist. Yeah. Strict modernist. It was Werner Seligman was the dean. So it was a pretty strict modernist school. I had no idea about that when I went there. And I remember <laughs> the, you know, I came from Mexico driving directly with my Mexican huaraches on and and, uh, and and showed up. And our first assignment was to draw something on the campus. We were given a sketch pad. And so I went out there and Hendricks Chapel was in the, diff- the distance, a beautiful building. And I put one of my Mexican sandals at the base of a tree and did what I thought was a kind of simple, beautiful drawing of the landscape. And I looked to my right and the person, his name is Jeff Hill, if he's listening, had drawn what was like an M.C. Escher drawing of the entire campus. It was really intimidating. And and, um, and then that evening, we were invited to Hendricks Chapel to hear Buckminster Fuller speak. I'm not sure how many people there would have admitted how little they understood of what he talked about. Um, but it was just such a, a kind of... Um, over my head conversation and that together with the culture shock of being from Mexico I went to see my basic design professor the next day and said I think this this may be a mistake I may have made a career mistake and he looked at my drawing we talked a little bit and he said you know why don't you stick with it it's possible you have a little less to unlearn than other people but um, not you know, coming in fresh and being curious and learning may be a good way in, so why don't you stick with it? And um, I did. And he was very supportive of an approach that was interesting to me that was, I think, in conflict a little bit with a kind of strict Bauhaus training, was I was always interested in narrative. So if we were given a figure ground project to create a, a two-story figure ground out of foam core, I would write a backstory or narrative about what what, what evolved uh, to lead to that. I've got to say, while it wasn't totally embraced, it was tolerated, uh, and ultimately, you know, it became something that I had really interesting conversations with people about. And I was fortunate that I held on to the kind of rough edges of what interested me and didn't feel the need to kind of totally conform to what the the kind of stated model was and um so but it it was a it was a challenging experience early on and i know you started your your own studio around uh 84 if i'm if i'm remembering correctly and after syracuse and before 84 what were those years like i had taken some time off from school after uh, coming back from London, studying at the AA, it's a sort of program abroad, got a job working as a assistant for a lighting designer on Broadway named Roger Morgan, amazing man. <clears throat> and he was also a theater consultant, so he needed a drafts person. So I would draft details in the day and be around the theater in the evening. I went back to school and, and finished my training. By It was a five-year program by 79 
in my mind. I was really out of Syracuse and in New York and looking for things to do. And I worked for a number of different people. Ken Walker, who was a really interesting architect designer. I worked for a guy named John Stork, who is an, is still and was then one of the leading recording studio designers in the world. Um, that was his specialty. But because he was focused on recording studios, projects that were on the edges, which I would say is where I like to live my life as projects that merge different pieces, um, he was less involved with. So it gave me a chance to be more involved. So I did one or two projects as project lead with John Stork. One of them was, are you familiar with the Crazy Horse Saloon? Somewhat. I know of it. So, so it's a legendary a club in Paris. It's a cabaret uh, with kind of projections on beautiful people. And it's, uh, you know, it's a legendary place that was coming to New York. Mm. And they approached him. He approached me. So we did the the room for that. And opening night, uh, I was approached by someone asking if I would do their restaurant. So that was really the beginning of me jumping off was thinking about doing this restaurant on my own, uh, which was Sushi Zen, and had a long run, like a 22-year run. And Sushi Zen um, unexpectedly won lots of awards and got a lot of recognition and kind of launched me kind of in the world of hospitality. Why do you think Sushi Zen was so successful critically at the time? Like, What were you doing differently that was kind of like a, a light bulb moment for people or what was different? I, I think one of the things that was different that is still something that's incredibly meaningful to me is kind of designing from the experience out. We really looked at movement. The, the main party was movement and choreography. So um, it was a narrow, I believe, 25-foot-wide shoebox with no natural light on 46th Street. There were glass, round glass rondelles set on the floor that were uplit that created a, a kind of runway that led to a sushi bar that was basically lightning bolt shaped. So it took a kind of rigor of one line and broke it into a number of places where you could gather around the sushi bar. So it made it more social. And I worked with Donna, I worked with Donna Granada, who was a costume designer at the Santa Fe Opera Festival. And the two side walls were silk murals with about a hundred different colors of silk layered. Um, and it was life and death for me. I mean, I think that sense of getting every detail right is life or death mm. is. Um, Were you just really invested in it? Like financially? Really invested in it. Okay. Well, not only was I, I actually borrowed money from a friend to lend them money to do the edge lighting for neon because uh, they didn't have the money to do it. And uh, I think it was, it was just, it was luck. It was good timing. It was very different than anything that had come before it. And the sushi chef uh, was extraordinary. So it became a kind of great place. Nothing makes design look better than good food. Before we return to David Rockwell, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. ANSAC's latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at ANSAC's have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. 
The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansacks tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansacks.com. I'm curious, you know, when you when you graduate and you're starting this new, you know, you talked about some theater work and what were your ambitions when you kind of started your firm? Were you like, oh, I'm going to do these restaurants and then I'm going to somehow get into that'll be my day job and then I'll, you know, I'll do some theater. Like what was your what was in your head at the time? What were your ambitions? I, I would I would say my drive to create. I was I was voracious. I was curious about everything around me. I was madly in love with New York City and I just saw it as a great laboratory for for trying different things. So there was no there was no strategic plan at all. And I do think, you know, when I'm speaking to young designers who are starting out or people who are working here, one piece of advice I give them, which I did not take myself, is don't put every day idea you have into your first project. But Sushi Zen was a case where I just loaded layer upon layer of thinking about movement and what makes a great place. And lighting has always been a, an obsession of mine. So one thing I say is don't put every idea you have into your first project. And the other is don't try and think out strategically what your career is going to be, because I think that just eliminates options. So there was no there was no focus on day job, night job. I was grateful. I, I took every design opportunity I could. Uh, and I really thought it was survival to make these places great. But I, I guess it's the creative instinct to, and in some ways, the uh, my history before that, transitioning from place to place and, and early losses and um, seeing how design brings people together was a kind of mission for me that um, that led to many restaurants. And, and I have to say, I had no real insight to restaurants. It was, um, I'd been to a New York City restaurant when I was 11 before we went to Guadalajara, which made a big impact on me called Schraff's. And in Mexico, I really um, totally uh, fell in love with, as I said, marketplaces, but also these little hole-in-the-wall restaurants that were pop-up places, maybe Saturday and Sunday, where they only served one dish, which was really a kind of an extension of how people lived. And um, so I think all that became kind of part of my my fuel. And um, I was very lucky, as I said before about Syracuse, to keep the things that I was interested in alive and um, that led to many, many restaurants, uh, some of them built by scenic shops. So I designed a renovation for La Paragore. Design and construction was like six weeks, and the scenic shop from La Mama, La Mama built it. So there was no project too small or too big. I was just, and, and that still is largely true for us. How we pick projects has very little to do with size. And has to do with do I perceive there's open space? Is there a, is there a client I want to engage with? Is there a building type I haven't done that um, that continues to intersect things we're interested in in my studio? And at at what point uh, did you begin your sort of you could say career spanning collaboration with Nobu uh, with that first restaurant at Tribeca? You know, was that how many years after Sushi Zen did that happen? That was about uh, nine years after Sushi Zen. After Sushi Zen, um, 
We had done a number of restaurants, mostly in New York, but some of them around the country. There were a number of things that happened pre-Nobu. One was we did Vong for Jean-Georges Vongdenrichten, which was his first restaurant in New York, other than he was a chef at Lafayette, when he left being the chef as an owner. Um, And that was just such a thrilling, immersive, amazing. I mean, he's such a genius. and, And it's where I kind of learned how to extract find a point of view to find a point of view that couldn't exist for any other person than him mm-hmm. so with the restaurant was a kind of portrait of observations about the food and the chef and then we did monkey bar uh, and nobu came about because i was designing an event for meals on wheels mm-hmm. um, famous charity in new york famous charity in new york that i've been on the board on on for more than 20 years um this was an event at the south street seaport called the feast of the many moons so the feast of the many moons uh was the great asian chefs from around the world coming to new york and i guess it must have been 92 um because nobu opened in 94 and i was on a ladder <coughs> lashing backlit moons that would glow and in um got down off the ladder and I got to taste some of the food and I tasted Nobu's uh, rock shrimp with the ponzu sauce <clears throat> and it was amazing and I said to him if you ever come to New York I would love to work with you and so I met with Drew Naporant who was the restaurateur partner uh, I met with uh, Robert De Niro who was also a partner and um, they gave me that opportunity to, to do that restaurant in Tribeca. And I had no sense of um, how significant that was going to be. And I guess that's a through line about your question. Was there some strategy? I think having a strategy rules out all the things that happen on the way. And I think one of the things I've learned about a restaurant and theater, just the different paradigms, is there's a lot of preparation that goes into your spontaneous experience, right? There's months of rehearsal for a two and a half hour show that's totally bespoke and will never happen again that way. And in a restaurant, all the work goes into that meal that's presented to you. So um, with Nobu, I knew I loved his food. I had no idea what a, what a cultural phenomenon was going to be, which is probably a good thing because it may have, um, you know, made us a little bit more self-conscious about decisions we made and um, I ate his food I got to know him um, I got to understand what uh, Bob De Niro's concerns were Drew Naporn who was really operating it um, and well, what was that first sit-down meeting with uh, you know Robert De Niro like what was he when you're I'm sitting around the table with a bunch of you um, what was he, why was he doing it? What was he telling you he wanted? Well, he, he discovered Matsuhisa from LA in a restaurant called Matsuhisa, which is still there. <clears throat> so I think it was his idea to bring it to New York. Um, Tribeca Grill was already open, I believe. So he had this experience of um, helping to build a neighborhood, which he cared about in Tribeca. And he, uh, I guess, enjoyed the restaurateur aspect of producing. It's not that different from producing a movie or a play. Um, uh, when I met with Nobu, who was the first person I spoke to, I got a sense of um, 
the uniqueness of his combination of Japanese rigor and South American flavors. And that was an aha moment for me of realizing we didn't want to trigger the same visual cues of every Japanese restaurant, but wanted to bring in this kind of Peruvian uh, hotness of color and um, wanted to have a place that engaged all of your senses. So the scorched ash tabletop is an example was all of the design features when they got to the table for a three-star restaurant, there was no tablecloth. There was a simple wood plank that actually felt good to touch that engaged your sense of touch. So there were a whole number of things and we, we did really an, an insane amount of research and backstory about Japanese landscape and because um, he was not from the city, he was from the country, which led to the kind of abstracted trees. Um, the first meeting with, with Bob who's really an amazingly smart um, thinker and really interested, deeply interested in design. And we've done a lot of projects for him, including the Greenwich Hotel in Tribeca, which is a ground up building that he built, uh, you know, post 9-11. Um, the first meeting was really him talking about uh, entrance, how people enter the space. I talked a little bit about wanting the sushi bar to be kind of a kabuki-like simple wall with a kitchen behind it, which was slightly unusual for a Japanese restaurant to combine sushi with the kitchen because so many of their dishes go back and forth. Um, uh, and he was very respectful and um, listened to what I had to say, made some suggestions. Um, we talked about flexibility. And, and I've got to say, Drew Naporent, uh, who's an amazing guy, really pushed for total flexibility. And I pushed back because I think a dining room actually needs to have um, parts that aren't flexible. I think banquettes, booths, things that you can't clear to just have the room be totally flexible. But it was a, the beginning of a long, long relationship where we've done, I think, 20 restaurants with them and in many hotels. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a, a privilege to have long-term relationships as an architect. It's something you don't get to do very often where you get to iterate and change and, and revise and rethink. And I guess, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, um, how would you, if you met somebody at a dinner party and you had to explain to them what, what the Rockwell Group was, just, you know, sitting next to someone in between courses and they asked you, what's the Rockwell Group? How would you respond? Oh God, that well, that's such a hard question. Probably what I would say is we're architects and designers, but as we got into it, I I would, you know, it's it's a it's a very hard question to ask. I think you sort of have to get into a dialogue, and um, but I would say architects and designers, because I think set design, production design, all of that really grows under kind of the design, the design world, and um, and I actually, as I think about it. I think you know some of the most profound experiences I've had are where we're doing more than one role, where we're creating the building and the content. So there's been, I think, three theaters where we've designed the theaters and the opening shows in those theaters, and we're now working on the Perlman Center downtown that opens in September. We're doing the public spaces, and we're also designing the opening show there. So it's a, it's a little bit like... Um, you know, setting the ground rules and then getting a chance to work within those. 
And when it comes to the theater work, you know, today, can you describe, uh, first of all, how did you wind up really starting to do that for Broadway and, and, and what that big break was? And I know that eventually you got a Tony and then it seems like it was just uh, downhill from there on in. Um, if you could explain, yeah, it's, a little- it's never, it's never, it's always uphill. It's always uphill. I, I, I mean, I don't know if that's true in what you do, but that sense of life and death that I felt for Sushi Zen is still very much, you know, part of our DNA. I think every decision matters. And I think, you know, um, really embracing that sense of possibility. So let me answer the question this way. I think, if you would say, how did Nobu happen? It wasn't a quick thing. It was years of doing restaurants, years of doing work for Meals on Wheels, and then an opportunity that turned into uh, a project. Union Square Cafe, I knew Danny a 10, 15 years before we did the new Union Square Cafe. I was a client, I was a friend, we had a dialogue. So I think we're living in a world where people expect things to happen instantly. Mm. And we, you know, we get entertainment in 30 second bites or less. So I think um, we look at things over a long period of time. And theater um, happened over many years. Uh, I had always, been interested in theater. I was always sketching in the theater. Uh, I had lots of friends who worked in the theater, um, including Jules Fisher. I don't know if you know Jules, but he's the preeminent lighting designer in the history of of Broadway. I mean, he's really a legend and an amazing guy. And a friend I made when I was 19 in architecture school, when I was researching a project, I reached out to him and we stayed friends over all those many years. We went to the theater together. And um, over time, when I would critique sets of a show I saw, he, he finally said, well, if, you're, if you have so much to say about it, why aren't you doing that? And I said, well, I, I have a very busy studio and I'm not sure how I would even make that transition. And he said, why don't you just start to meet people? So it was a four or five year process of meeting with directors sketching, listening, and trying to figure out what was my way in, what was our language, and how would that match with how directors want to work. And ultimately, the the kind of first breakthrough was me understanding that what I find most thrilling about design is how it sets the stage for the story. And how it, how, you know, I'm interested in movement, I'm interested in change. I thought about the Rube Goldberg contraptions, um, my interest in um, things that transform, my interest in technology. We started a small technology lab called the Lab at Rockwell Group based on trying to study these things. Um, and then there were several false starts that were heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, and then, ironically, I almost turned down the first project we were offered which was in 99 i had done work for many non-for-profit theater pieces Uh, this was the first kind of broadway opportunity and again i think not knowing how significant it is helps de-escalate the anxiety about making any decision okay but it was the rocky horror show directed by chris ashley amazing director produced by jordan roth jordan's first show and having lived in mexico from 12 to 18 somehow that slice of american popular culture 
didn't exist for me. So I didn't really know about the movie. So I got the DVD and watched it. And okay. I came back in and said, I'm confused about about this. Um, just why is it? Because I was thinking theater was going to be like the cherry orchard at BAM. I thought it was going to be the more kind of academic partner to my more populist day job. And so the Rocky Horror Show on Broadway, but Chris Ashley who's really such a brilliant guy and now runs La Jolla, said, you know, in some ways you have to see it with an audience because the Rocky Horror Show is about self-creation and it's about an audience participation. And it was a brilliant thing to say and it was an amazing first project. And I go back to Siegfried Snyder saying, you have less things to unlearn. No one had told me you couldn't have the floor rotate and turn around and go into the floor. So I was able to do that. So I, I think um, not being in a hurry, being willing to take creative risks, trying to figure out what is your unique point of view into a project is, is kind of the driver for us. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Material Bank. As you know, I've been a design journalist for 20 years. And in that time, I visited dozens of designer studios. Sure, it's fun seeing where architects and such work and sketch, but my favorite part of the tour, it's always the material library. And as any designer knows, finding, sourcing, and keeping track of samples is a major undertaking and a major headache. But there's no discipline of design without a keen knowledge and access to great and innovative materials. That's where Material Bank comes in. As the fastest and most sustainable platform to search, sample, and specify materials, it's become an indispensable tool. On Material Bank, you can search more than 500 brands in seconds, connect with reps, get vital specs in an instant, and most importantly, get those samples in hand overnight. It's the most sustainable way of pulling samples from around the world, and everything comes in one box. And it's more than just a place to browse, it's also a connective network that's powering the design world to create amazing things. Our guest today, David Rockwell, could certainly attest to the power of materiality. His own library at Rockwell Group is truly massive, with a team to match, to keep it all in order, and his crew is well aware of the power of materiality in making things come alive, whether it's a hotel or a Broadway musical. So it's no surprise that the Rockwell Group is a highly engaged member of Material Bank, and their studio dips into its considerable resources constantly to create their projects. It's free for designers to join, so go online to become a member today at materialbank.com. And, you know, you're now reaching this this milestone of 40 years of the firm. Um, and, you know, I would say that you are you still a, see yourself as like a, a booster of design and architecture as sort of an industry for good. And obviously you're, you're also, you know, involved with lots of charities and things like that. Do you think that today things like sustainability and you know, artificial intelligence and design, is it making it harder for design professionals to actually make an impact on the world? Or is it more important than easier than ever or harder than ever? I'm kind of wondering, you know, what the internal monologue of a lot of architects and designers are today, because it seems like a lot of them are um, stressed in a, in a way where they they feel like they're, there are a lot of obstacles now to kind of realizing a vision well that's a lot that's a multi-layered <clears throat> essay question 
the work we're doing now is work that I've been kind of curious about for 10 years. It's happening now, like the work we're doing for Johns Hopkins um, at 555 Pennsylvania Avenue, where it's very similar to thinking about how movement, how choreography, why people want to be together in the same place, what creates a magnetic place. Because, you know, university has the same challenges of professors and students don't want to show up in person. They've had the Zoom experience. And um, so what do you create that physically attracts people to be together? And I think that's why I was interested in the city as a place, why the community theater as a kid. Um, and we're doing more and more of that. We're, we're redoing the Union Square W, which was, I think, the second W, mm-hmm. and a total gut redo in the Guardian Life Building. And that's a chance to, you know, take a crack at something we did 20 years ago and redo. So um, I, I, I think we are boosters of, of design as a discipline because I think, you know, I think more and more architects and designers are finding that having a seat at the table of how things work uh, is, is critical. Um, so the questions of AI and what was the other question? Well, sustainability, all the modern issues that people have to deal with today. Is it, is that making. Well, sustainability is no longer an, uh, a non-option. I think, I think anyone who's not looking at sustainability as a cornerstone of their business is not, does not have a sustainable business. Um, so I think that ship has sailed and I'm really glad it's sailed. It does mean there's a whole set of other things people are talking about, like not just leads, but also well. What are the what are the um, elements that lead to kind of emotional wellness in a space and criteria for that? And so I think sustainability is always something to learn more about, but I think it's 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 what is absolutely required for any designer operating in the world and we take it very seriously. AI is an interesting question because I think, you know, there are some industries at the moment who are very concerned about that replacing the work they're doing, particularly in the kind of the writer community. And I have lots of friends who are writers and talking about that. What we're trying to do with AI at Rockwell Group is use it to build a model of knowing all of our work so that it means uh, there's a kind of faster initial iteration, but it's still going to be driven by having a, in our case, a non-linear point of view. A friend of mine who's a writer said the one thing AI can't do is comedy it because it can't understand that irony. And I think probably the same is true for, you know, you can look at juxtapositions in the world and ask that to come up with one. Um, but I think we're sort of, we're sort of doubling down on craft in making and kind of the opposite of what AI would do to build the handmade world. Uh, but we are using um, and understanding how AI can be a tool for delving in a kind of quick sketch way into something you're curious about. And today, how, you know, your theater part of your business, how many designers like work in this sort of specialized studio? There's um, two full-time set designers um, and me, it's a it's a smaller group and two or three freelance people per project. But it's um, every other part of my business is permeable. So there's about between our studio in L.A., in Madrid and New York, there were about 350 people. Um, 
and those are divided into 10 different teams in New York that do a lot of different kinds of things. But, but theater is a specialty that it's me and these, these two great people and then a number of freelance people we bring in per project. In the lab, the lab is about 20 people of that 350, and that's made up of strategists and technologists and um, sculptors and painters. And, and so I'm curious, you know, you must, do you just go to the theater yourself, even if it's not a client? Do you just enjoy going, you know, here in New York with being here on so close to Broadway? I do. I, I mean, I think, I think there's many things that are miraculous about New York. Um, there are things that are challenging, but you know, the 41 Broadway theaters, the fact that, um, these are these kind of precious resources that have stayed alive and, um, you know, very much about collaboration. Somebody to think about that always amazes me. And it was the first Broadway show I saw was Fiddler on the Roof, but I think it's a great paradigm to look at to create one moment one memorable moment there's probably 25 people who touch that moment writers choreographers tech directors lighting designers uh everyone else i'm leaving off actors um and i think that holds true in the built world as well so i go to the theater i'm now on the board of the american theater wing <clears throat> so i'm a tony voter so i go see everything but i saw everything before too okay so if you're a tony voter uh, and you see everything. I'm curious, you know, just like the film industry is going through its different kind of crisis right now um, with the writer strike and now the actor strike. Um, and people talk about theater and how it's changing and how how it, how hard it is for works to be successful and to really survive. You know, what what is your take on the whole situation of sort of the health of American theater? I, I don't know the answer to that. I know what my answer would have been. A few years ago, mm -hmm. um, I think it's challenging right now. You know, my my overarching answer is everyone's always predicting the theater is an invalid and not going to survive. Right. That's a thing people say every 10 years and it does survive just like people who feel like the city is at this crisis point right now. And it's a challenging place. But you look at how the city invites action and um allows participation and reinvention like who would ever think that an abandoned rail yard would be one of the great parks or that the waterfront that was mostly for you know cargo coming in is now this necklace of parks around the city um so i think theater will survive i think it's in a challenging place right now <clears throat> economically there's a lot of shows that are suffering and hurting and i don't think the full population of visitors to New York is supporting the theater quite the way they are have been but I think it's temporal and I think the solution is doing great work and trying to not spend money you don't need to spend and trying to trying to have a very specific point of view and we we spoke a bit during the pandemic for a story and departures about travel and what we thought maybe the future was going to bring and I'm I'm curious you know now that you you have a greater pulse on things in terms of travel and entertainment and performative works and public works and you have your playground project and you know what is your sort of prognosis now uh you know have things changed or not changed in the pace that you thought that they would maybe in the depths of lockdown a couple of years ago since we spoke last 
Well, I went back and looked at that conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they haven't changed as much as I suggested they would. <laughs> um, but I'm still hopeful. Um, I mean, I think I think there are a few industries that you can identify that seem as broken as travel by plane. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just so, so fraught with so many challenges it's one of the reasons why for for many many years i said i wanted to do an airport and we had a chance to do the JetBlue terminal um i brought in a choreographer which you know JetBlue thought was just semantics but it was not at all it was to deal with how to have movement that feels intuitive um uh, but when we talked i suggested there was going to be this interesting emergence of or, or a combination of luxury and non-luxury that um, that there would be more privacy at airports that the, that um, that the pandemic and the need for flexibility, which I still believe is architects is the biggest lesson from the pandemic, is to lean into flexibility um, and changeability. But I don't. I think the airline industry has been slow to adapt to that. Um, we we did design the experience and the trains and the stations for Brightline, which is the train connection through all of Florida and now is expanding to L.A. to Las Vegas. I think that's an example where there's been a, merge, a, a kind of merger of popularly priced but still some elements of luxury and privacy. And I think that's the that's the interesting thing about by travel is there's you know the luxury travel for the one percent is fine but it's everything in between um that i think is still open for some reinvention i took the bright line i think i'm <laughs> i took the bright line once and it was actually a great experience um, fantastic so in terms of you know we're sp speaking about hotels and travel you know today if i came to you and said um you know david i'd love for you to teach a class at syracuse about designing hotels what would you tell your class? Like, what makes a good hotel? What's so interesting about the question is one of the things that makes a great hotel is an environment that doesn't call attention to the physicality of it. When you think about, you know, how do you get from place to place? How are the building systems in the room? Uh, what is the lighting like that you can control by the bed? So I think there's there's obstacles to making a, a kind of frictionless hotel experience that involves not calling attention to the physicality of it. I think the other thing that makes a great hotel is a point of view where that hotel couldn't exist in any other place other than where it is. I was in Milan for the furniture fair this year. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the Four Seasons in Milan, of course, there's Four Seasons all over the world. But that particular hotel is so linked to the quality of the courtyard, the quality of the rooms, the idiosyncratic nature of every room being diff different. So I think having a strong point of view that links to its location not having the physicality create a lot of obstacles and having some places that trigger intense memories that uh, both are about the place and its location. I think those are the building blocks of a great hotel. And then there's there'd be subclasses. There'd be a class on lighting. There'd be a class on acoustics. There'd be a class on um, textures, how things feel. 
And how, you know, what would you say is the most underappreciated element of all of those things in terms of hotel design? No, no question. I think acoustical isolation of the rooms and mechanical systems, you know, draft over the bed. I think there's, I think there's things that deal with environmental comfort that are overlooked by most consumers that have a bigger effect on their experience. We, we did design the first Equinox Hotel at Hudson Yards. Um, and I'm happy to say it's a big success. And, you know, part of it was drilling down on what their point of view was going to be, which became a great place to sleep. Once you start to look at what, what creates a great place to sleep, it allows you to drive into doing things that other hotels don't do. But a lot of those are invisible. They have to do with the building systems and blackout shades and, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, especially for Equinox, where I guess we're expecting everyone to <laughs> to be uh, going to the gym and really needing their proper eight hours of sleep or whatever they're getting. Kind of, although what their their mission was, it's not linked to the club. You can get from the hotel to the club, but they were they were looking for a new form of luxury, which really resonates for me. I think Nobu in 94 was one of the reasons it was so successful is it interpreted luxury is maybe the meal isn't two and a half hours. Maybe the meal is an hour and a half and you get an hour back to do other things. And, um, you know, maybe luxury is food arriving as it's cooked, not all at the same time. And uh, just a number of things that I think luxury is always in transition. And what's next for your firm? Because, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's something I ask a lot of people. You have a big firm. So there's a lot coming up. Uh, is, is there anything in particular that you, you, you're kind of most excited about? Yeah, I'm very excited about um, <clears throat> the Johns Hopkins project at 555 Pennsylvania Avenue <clears throat> because I think it's a very unique project. And it's, it's a place that will be about kind of uh, it's at graduate level, all their colleges at the graduate level will participate in this research uh, education building where um, the idea of cross-pollination of ideas is the, the fabric of the building. So it's a different scale. It's, it's an amazing opportunity. And we've had a chance to work with awesome people there. So that's one. Um, I'm excited about a small project we're doing for Simon Kim who owns a restaurant called Coat and we're doing a restaurant for him called Coco Doc that's in very simple but it goes back to some of the ideas I thought were relevant at Sushi Zen um, of illumination and path. Oh we're doing a teeny project at Lincoln Center called I'm not sure I get the name right the Harvey Fierstein Lab so it's a small, a flexible theater space that ties into the library for the, for the performing arts, amazing archive of material and creates a place where you can workshop something new. You can interact. It's a physical place to interact with their incredible library. And that opens in the fall or probably opens in the spring. It'll be done in the fall, but then they're going to have to get the bugs out. I mentioned Union Square W. Um, those are the things. Oh, well, I can't talk about that. <laughs> There's several projects I can't talk about that I'm very interested in. Is there, uh, what's the next um, Broadway show you're working on? Or any? Well, yeah. the next the theatrical thing I'm doing is the 
the two weeks of opening events at the Perlman Center, which is, you know, interesting because it's a thing, it's a environment that has to work for two different weeks of things. And then I'm doing a Broadway revival of a play called Doubt, written by John Patrick Shanley. That was a play I loved, working with a director I love, uh, Scott Ellis. And in Chicago in November, I'm doing a musical with Jerry Mitchell, who I've done seven or eight shows with, who's a great partner, called Betty Boop's Big Day Off, that <laughs> may hopefully, you know, that it, it I mean, Betty Boop was an incredible creation growing out of the depression and um it's going to be an interesting fun big bold musical wow i never thought that i would uh end an interview on betty boop but i can't really top that so um thank you there's so much there's no topping the boop there's no topping the boop thank you to our guest david rockwell and to joan mckeith for making this episode happen the editor of the grand tourist is stan hall to keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm-hmm.